Now this morning, we have a great deal to cover, so let me very quickly set the scene, just in case you haven't been with us the last few weeks. From the start of John 13 to the close of John 16, Jesus has been sharing with his disciples some parting words. As a matter of fact, later this very evening, Jesus will be arrested, and then by noon the following day, he will have been crucified for the sins of the world. This all-important final conversation that initially began in an upper room around a Passover table, it continued as Jesus and these men, 11, Judas already departing, make their way through the streets of Jerusalem, heading east towards the Mount of Olives. In fact, John 18 will open with Jesus and these merry men exiting the temple, trekking across the Kidron Valley, before entering the Garden of Gethsemane. While Jesus has finished his discourse, declaring in John 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now before leaving the city, Jesus takes a moment, he does something really amazing. They're about to leave the temple, about to go across the Kidron, about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus will there be betrayed. They will scatter, he will be arrested, the dominoes will fall in order. But before these things happen, he's finished his last exhortation. In John 17, Jesus prays for these men. Now before we dive into the text itself, there's a few things you should keep in mind about John 17 in particular. First, what we have recorded here is completely unique. Not only is John the only gospel writer that records this particular prayer, but it really is a one of a kind. Now, Jesus was known as a man of prayer. Jesus prayed often. He prayed frequently. But this, here in John 17, is the longest, most extensive record of any of his prayers recorded in the Bible. Now, pertaining to the sacred nature of this unique passage, Scottish theologian John Knox remarked that John 17 was, quote, the holy of holies and the temple of Scripture. Indeed, as we take time this morning to work our way through these 26 verses, and in doing so unpack this intimate moment Jesus shares with His heavenly Father, publicly with His disciples, know we are about to venture onto holy ground. Secondly, One of the main reasons this prayer demands our attention is for what it reveals to us about Jesus. You know, it's been said you can learn a lot about someone when you hear them pray. And this prayer is no exception. In just a few short hours, Jesus will be betrayed, brutally executed, and yet, before this happens, Jesus takes a moment to intercede for his disciples. You see, the themes and the subjects that emerge in this prayer These are the things weighing on Jesus' heart as he's approaching the cross. And we'll find that they reveal a deep love for his disciples. The other reason this prayer is so important is that it teaches us much about prayer. You see, prayer, more than just being the divine right of every child of God, is an essential component to our relationship with our Father in heaven. Prayer is essential in a profound sense. Prayer is the fundamental way that we move from the physical realm around us into the spiritual. Prayer is the way that we boldly approach the throne of grace. I have 
three young children. A seven-year-old Quincy, a four-year-old Theodore, and then our infant Mabel. And I've learned over the time that infants, as they grow into children, they learn to speak by listening. In fact, children learn to speak, they learn language, by listening to their parents' talk. You know, in much the same way, you and I, as children of the Most High God, the best way for us to learn how to pray is to listen in to Jesus pray. We learn a lot. Now, if you're a note taker, this prayer can be divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the 11 disciples with him. And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus will specifically pray for all of his disciples throughout the millennia. Yes, it is amazing to consider. But Jesus, this very night, was not only praying for himself, not only praying for the disciples with him, but Jesus had you and I on his mind. Well, verse 1 of John 17 We read that Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent. I'm struck initially here by the posture of Jesus' prayer. John recalls, writing as an old man, recounting these events, he recalls how Jesus, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, You know, one of the interesting misconceptions of prayer is that we stipulate in order to pray, you have to close your eyes. Well, not so with Jesus. In this prayer, Jesus' eyes are wide open, and he's looking up to heaven. Now, the reason this detail is significant is what it tells us in the moment about Jesus' present outlook. Though an incredible trial was coming his direction, Jesus intentionally keeps his perspective upwards. Jesus chose to keep a heavenly perspective in the midst of his trying earthly circumstances. This is what prayer helps us with. The psalmist declares in Psalms 121 verses 1 and 3, singing, I will lift my eyes to the hills, from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He will keep you, not from slumber. Like Never forget, the key to navigating a storm of life is to keep your eyes fixed to a navigational point located not in front of you, but above you in the heavens. I'm also struck here by Jesus' first word, how he opens the prayer. He says, Father. In the disciples' prayer, Jesus told us to begin our prayers, how? Our Father, who art in heaven. Here, Jesus is modeling for us this very approach. He's approaching God with a term of respect, but also one of endearment, Father. This term, it's warm and it's conversational. Jesus is relating to God on the basis of their relationship, Father. 
One Bible scholar noted how up until Jesus, no other major religion had ever presented prayer using such personal terminology. Even in Jewish culture, it was taught that God, to be approached, he had to be approached with reverence and utmost respect, to the point that the Jews even refused in their prayers to utter verbally the name of God. They would just say the name. In writing, they would just use the consonants, Y-H-W-H. Now, while they were being respectful, and we can understand that, this approach had a negative consequence, an unintended consequence. Yes, they were approaching God with reverence and respect and a certain amount of fear and holiness, but in doing so, they were also keeping God at an arm's length, distant and largely unknowable. But Jesus blows this out of the water and how he prays and how he teaches us to pray. It's incredible that Jesus not only dismissed such a notion by coming before God using this term Father. No one in the Old Testament would have dared approach God in such a way. But Jesus specifically uses a term that's relatable to every human and all experiences. We've all had a father. Friend, regardless of the type of man your earthly father happened to be, and not to bag on yours in particular, but some are better than others. And to a large extent, we often have a, a hard time with God because of the terminology of Father. Such bad experiences carry over negative connotations. And yet, I want you to know this morning, regardless of, of what your Father was like, you have right now, in the throne room of heaven, a Father. A Father that loves you unconditionally. A Father that is proud of you thoroughly. A Father who desires nothing more than to take care of your needs for one reason. You're His kid. Father. As your Father, God is both available, He's accessible, and He's completely relatable. Jesus continues, He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Jesus knew what was coming. What was coming in just an hour or so. But instead of praying for escape from the trial at hand, he prays for strength. The strength to endure in such a way that his life would bring his heavenly Father glory. You know, it's a monumental thought to consider, and we'll unpack this in the weeks to come, but the way that Jesus died brought his Father and himself glory. With this in mind, it's important to point out that Jesus here, he's not in survival mode. You know what that's like, right? Everything's hitting you at once, and you're just doing everything you can to make it. This is not Jesus. He's not in survival mode. Even with the horrors ahead, Jesus is not in a point of desperation, as if things are out of control. Jesus knew what was coming, and he knew what was coming was absolutely necessary. And it was in light of this reality that as Jesus is evaluating, as he's praying for himself, what does he pray for? He prays that how he would handle what was coming, the hours come, he wants to make sure how he handles it would bring God glory. Not to beat a point into the ground, but may I ask, 
Are you concerned with whatever you're going through that the way you handle it, the way that you live, also brings God glory? You know, in our prayers, sometimes instead of requesting escape from a trial, our prayer should be like, God, I just want to glorify you in how I handle it. And I know I can't do that on my own, so I need your help. Speaking of himself, Jesus adds, you have given me authority over all flesh that I should give eternal life to as many as you have given me. And this is eternal life, Jesus adds, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As Jesus is speaking with his Father, and as he's making requests, requesting strength to endure the cross, he's reminded that eternal life, the eternal life of mankind, was what was at stake. Jesus had been sent from heaven to this earth for the singular task of satisfying the debt of sin no man could satisfy on his own so that we might be saved. His mission had monumental consequences. In fact, Jesus says that his father, knowing this was the task, had given him authority, right, over all flesh. And Jesus was more than able. You know, in a world considering what is eternal life, the biblical answer is crystal clear. Eternal life, how do you get it? Simple. Knowing Jesus Christ. It's interesting, but this is the only place in the Bible that Jesus speaks of himself in the third person, using this phrase, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. Jesus, literally the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. He's claiming to be the promised Savior. Friend, again, if you desire eternal life, the key, according to this text, is to know Jesus. And note, it's not about doing things. It's about knowing someone. It's not about stocking up your works, but knowing someone who works. His name being Jesus. In the Greek, there are two words presented that are translated into English as knowing. The first is to know by intuition. It's to know something because, well, you know it. The second, though, which is used in this passage is to know, not by intuition, but by experience. To know. Jesus is saying here that the only way to possess eternal life is to have a relationship with the only true God through Him, through knowing Him. Again, there's no wiggling around the claim of exclusivity. Not only is eternal life presented here, as what? As a gift of God. Look at the text again. That he should give eternal life. This means that eternal life is something that God gives and we receive. It's not something we earn and then are rewarded with. But you know, we find this also again, and this is common throughout John's gospel. Eternal life being presented in the present tense. We think of eternal life as this grand thing we have when we die. So instead of hell, we get to go to heaven. Kind of the Willy Wonka golden ticket. I've got the golden ticket, something I've got that will yield a result in the future. But not so with eternal life. Aside from that glorious reality, eternal life is something I presently possess. Think of eternal life as a life given today that lasts for eternity. Again, called everlasting life. Verse 4. 
Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What an amazing declaration. Like first, Jesus affirms, I have glorified you on the earth. Jesus is saying that his entire life had been a testimony of God the Father. Meaning that his entire life had been lived with a perfection, a complete sinlessness. Everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said, every miracle he performed, all those years working as a carpenter in Nazareth, had brought his heavenly Father glory. (laughs) But that's not all. Jesus then declares, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. (laughs) Consider for a moment how Jesus could make this type of statement. How could he say that he had finished the work? Well, on one end, it's clear that the only way Jesus could have said something like this is when his resolve to the cross had been ironclad. That Jesus had already surrendered to what was going to happen. It was a formality from Jesus' perspective. Yes, he had work to do, but it was finished. He was done. I'm doing this. But you know, beyond that, it should also be pointed out that in order to finish the work, (laughs) you have to actually know what work needs to be finished. You see, Jesus came to earth being sent by his heavenly Father, completely aware as to what his calling had been. Jesus knew what he was supposed to be doing. Jesus knew the task at hand. And now he testifies, I knew what to do, and I've done it. Everything Jesus did, and really more specifically, everything Jesus didn't do, was filtered through the prism of his heavenly calling and his particular mission. As a point of application, let me ask, what work has God given you to do? As your example... Jesus, it's critical you consider that Jesus never allowed opportunities unrelated to his calling to deter or distract him from the task or the work that God had given him to accomplish. Jesus kept the main thing the main thing. Most of Jesus' decisions ended up being evaluated not on what was good or bad, but what was better and best in regards to the work God had given him. You know, so often we get deterred from the work God has given by doing good things that aren't related. What vision, what calling, what has God given you? May we all be able to declare at the end that we have finished the work that our Father in heaven had given us to do. Jesus adds, he says, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Seeing the finish line up ahead, Jesus here, he longs for home. Like, do you you pick that up in the text itself? Like the tone, and I know there's no tone in in the, the written word, but as I play it out, as I hear Jesus saying these things, as I hear him pray, this line, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before the world was, I there's a homesickness that to me oozes from this declaration. Jesus is ready to be done. He's ready to be home. 
He's ready to return to the intimate oneness with his father that the incarnation had robbed him of. Well, verse 6. This is entering the next section. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, or to be of the same substance as you, and that they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. In transitioning his prayer from himself now to these eleven disciples, Jesus affirms that during these two and a half years that he had spent with them, that he had thoroughly manifested his Father's name to them. Literally, Jesus is saying here that everything God the Father was, Jesus the Son made manifest. The implications of this statement is that the Old Testament God, the God of the Old Testament, is completely knowable. And how? If you want to know the God of the Old Testament, look no further than the life and the ministry, the man, Jesus. In fact, this word manifested, it means to put on display or literally to take what once was hidden and present it openly for all to see. What this means is that if you want to know what God's heart is towards the sinner, if you want to know God's heart towards those that are hungry or or who are sick, if you want to know how God feels about the demoniac or the outcast or the downtrodden, if you want to know God and how God feels of you, look no further than Jesus. In Jesus, God was manifested on this earth. In describing these men, Jesus affirms a few things about them. One, they had been given to him by the Father. He says, they were yours, you gave them to me. That's simple. Two, Jesus says, they have kept your word. They've been obedient. Three, Jesus says that they knew who he really was, his identity. He says, they believe that you sent me. They also affirm where Jesus had come from. That he came forth from his father. Finally, and probably most amazingly, Jesus says, I am glorified in them. Again, that's mind-blowing. Especially in light of the fact that Jesus had just said his life had brought his father glory. Now he says that these men were bringing him glory. That's radical. Especially when you you examine that, that these 11 men were pure knuckleheads. Like, they're not the type of people you're staking your reputation on. And yet, Jesus is. Jesus also knows that in in an hour, they're going to all deny him and run away. And yet, Jesus is like, I'm glorified in them. It's amazing. Jesus is saying that in the same way his life had brought his Father in heaven glory, the lives of these men were bringing him glory. Christian, the proper way to evaluate your life is not what you do or what you accomplish. It's not your success or your failures. Instead, the proper way to evaluate your life is on one criteria. 
is Jesus being glorified in you. And what's great, with these men being our example, is that doesn't require perfection. They were far from perfect. The reality is that while the world cannot see Jesus, His glory, His presence in the world should manifest through you. You know, in the context of the disciples receiving the Word of God, Jesus makes another fascinating statement. He, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. In this prayer, Jesus is doing something interesting. He's establishing a contrast. He's establishing a contrast between the world and the Word. When Jesus talks about the world, Keep in mind that he's referring to a corrupt culture. And using this term, the world, he's referring to a system that is fundamentally godless and in rebellion. While in the Garden of Eden, God established a perfect, a holy culture, Satan and subsequently man's sin completely corrupted it. The very moment the world embraced the lie instead of the truth and man brought into bought into the notion that he could be his own God. A love for self supplanted a love for one's fellow man. Selfishness entered the world. Even when culture, according to Genesis, had become so toxic and wicked that God was forced to hit reset and destroy the world with a flood, it didn't take long for this system, this broken system known as Babel, to reemerge. Ever since, Babylon the Great, as the Bible refers, has stood in opposition to the kingdom of God. Biblically speaking, you should note the day is coming when the kingdom of God will be brought by Jesus to this earth and dis completely destroy what Revelation 18 refers to as the whore of Babylon, this corrupted system. Practically speaking, what this tells us I think this is important, is that no culture on this fallen planet is sacred. Now, some cultures are better than other cultures, but no culture is sacred. All culture is part of the world. It's fallen. Every political, financial, educational system has been tainted by sin. And why? Because sinners are involved. Whether it be capitalism or communism, free markets or socialism, democracy or totalitarianism, every system on this planet falls short of the glory of God. This is why Jesus says here, I do not pray for the world. I pray for you. I don't pray for the world. What's the point? Knowing that my audience here largely leans to the right, let me say one thing we need to keep in mind. While communism enables the greed of a few men in power, capitalism enables all men to pursue greed. Both are fallen. My point is any system devised or controlled by sinful man falls woefully short. Capitalism isn't more noble than Marxism, for neither one is rooted in godliness. You see, Jesus was neither a free market apologist, nor is he a socialist supporter. Instead, what is Jesus? 
He is the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords who will usher in a kingdom that is fundamentally not of this world. The truth is the world. is a common theme in his prayer. Jesus speaks against the world and he prays for those who follow him. The fact is, this world, it stands in opposition to everything that the Bible has to say. This contrast, the world and the word. Everything the Bible says about life, about sex, about marriage, about gender, about parenting, finances, purpose, the world is opposed to. The world throws parades to celebrate behaviors that grieve the heart of God. Christian, never forget, instead of seeking to be friendly with the world, The church, you and I, we've been called to represent a kingdom that's fundamentally in opposition to her. We stand against the world. Not to be isolated from, but to stand against because this world, it bubbles forth from the bowels of hell and it robs people of the life that God created them for and Jesus died to redeem them for. We testify not only of coming destruction, But more than that, an opportunity to be saved, to be changed, to be given eternal life. You see, in contrast to the world, Jesus prays for these men who had accepted the word. Knowing the pure word would stand in opposition to the fallen world, Jesus knew conflict between the two would be constant. Jesus wants them. He prays for them that they'd stand on truth in a world full of lies. Understand this fundamental conflict between the world and the Word is why the world wants nothing more than to change the Word of God. Have you ever noticed that? Like, why do you want to change the Word of God? You can reject it, resist it, not like it, but why are you trying to change it? Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to unpack that point. Other than to say this, Concerning the Word of God, one of two things always happens. Either God's Word changes you, or you seek to change it. It's always one or the two. Verse 11, Jesus says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I have come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, or the son of destruction, this being Judas Iscariot. Jesus continues that the scripture might be fulfilled. This line, I am no longer in the world. Again, just kind of a bizarre statement. While Jesus here is physically in the world, when he prays this, The reference seems to imply that spiritually he had moved to a different reality. And remember, the same thing can happen with you and I through prayer. Prayer allows you to transcend the physical and enter the spiritual realm, the throne of God. He says, I have come to you. And then he says, Holy Father. Now, it's true that Father was the most common term that Jesus ever used concerning God. He uses it more frequently than any other. This, though, happens to be the only time Jesus says, Holy Father. Not just in John's Gospel, but period. In fact, in a few short verses, 
Jesus will then pray, Righteous Father, Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father. It would appear that as Jesus continues this interaction with His Father in Heaven through prayer, things become and grow more and more intimate and passionate. It deepens. He says, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Again, knowing what was about to happen to these 11 men in a matter of of a few short hours, Jesus specifically requests of his heavenly Father that he would keep them, or literally tend to them, carefully, take care of them. And for what purpose does Jesus make the request? Look at it. He says, take care of them or keep them that they may be one as we are. Knowing that opposition was coming, Jesus' chief desire was for these men to remain united together. And then Jesus gives a pattern for what this unity looks like. He says, to be one as we are one. It's an amazing thought, but our unity should be similar to the triunity. Always know there is a huge difference between uniformity and unity. Oneness is not sameness. True unity and oneness from a biblical context actually exists, it manifests, it requires a diversity. Unity and diversity. Father, Son, and Spirit. The triune nature of God. There are one God and three unique persons with three distinct but equal roles. In the same fashion, marital oneness can be only yielded through a diversity, not a sameness, but a diversity of both male and female, according to the Bible. While the world desires unity, its method of achieving unity tends to be the pursuit of sameness. It's not having a diversity of opinion, it's having one opinion. Quit thinking, your th- join our thought. We can be one. When we're all the same. And until we're all the same, well, we're not one. So we pursue unity, but we try to pursue it through a sameness. Instead of the acknowledgement and the appreciation of what makes people distinctly different. Sameness demands uniformity. Shut up and follow. And yet the church, that's not the basis of our unity. Our unity is based in a diversity, but a greater commonality, the Holy Spirit. The fact we've been saved by God's grace and not ourselves. We should contrast this. While a unified people, the beauty of the church is that our oneness is made manifest in and through our differences. There's nothing like that in this world. Verse 13, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus transitions here. He says, but now I come to you. He's getting to the purpose of his prayer. In addition to their unity, Jesus prays that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
Not only does Jesus pray that we would have joy, he classifies it that we would have his joy. Understand, Jesus' joy was found in an unbreakable relationship, an interconnectedness with his Father in heaven. Earthly sorrow and trial could never rob Jesus of joy because it was tethered to an unshakable heavenly source. It's amazing that in Isaiah, Jesus is referred to as a man of sorrows. But he was also a man of joy. Even though Jesus acknowledges that the world would hate these men, he continues, I I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Jesus knew that leaving his disciples on this earth would be risky. The world would hate them, and an enemy would attack them. But it would be worth it. You see, Jesus had a purpose. He has a plan in keeping his disciples in the world. For we testify of his resurrection. Though limited in time, this line, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, it's one you should highlight and study more on your own because it directly challenges the concept of Christian isolationism. We are to be in the world. Jesus says, I don't pray that they would be removed from, but that they would be in the world. Like, we're not to be insulated from worldly things. We're to be in the world with a heavenly mission and a heavenly purpose, a divine calling. We're here that we might be light in the darkness. Verse 16, Jesus says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Because we're in the world, but not of the world, Jesus prays that the Father would continually sanctify us by His truth. And then He adds, your word is truth. To begin with, Jesus is clear. This process of sanctification by which we become more godly, more holy, better. Sanctification, according to Jesus, is a work of God. It's a work of God in you and not something you do or can conjure up on your own. Furthermore, Jesus explains how God works this process of sanctification. He does it through His Word. God works in you, sanctifying you through the Word of God, through studying the Word of God. This is why We do what we do here on Sunday morning. It's the process of of God working in us, cleansing us, sanctifying us. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 5.26, Paul describes for us the washing of water by the Word of God. Aside from that amazing reality, the idea of being sanctified. It means that we're set apart for God's pleasure. We're set apart for His purposes. Sanctification means to be set apart from something, in context it's the world, for something else, his good pleasure. Never forget, the process of sanctifying is not for God to get the most out of you. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to make the most out of you. It's not to get the most out of you, it's to make the most out of you. Jesus is more concerned in who you're becoming like than what you're doing. 
he says, I have sent then the disciples into the world. He didn't leave these men behind. Instead, he sent them into the world. In the Greek, this word have sent is apalisto. It's our English word apostle. It means, apostle means, one who was sent. In the Latin translation of, of this word apostle, it's missio. It's the word we get for missions. Jesus is saying, I have sent them on a mission. Notice Jesus places our mission into the context of his mission. He says, as you have sent me, I also have sent them. The point is, is we are sent on a mission as Jesus was sent. Which tells us something about our mission. You know, Jesus wasn't sent as a philosopher. He didn't come as an inventor or a discoverer. He wasn't sent as a conqueror. Jesus was sent. And how did that mission manifest? He came to earth as a normal man to a common place to manifest the presence of Almighty God. Verse 20, this third section. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is the future tense. This is all of us. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which, I, which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Not only does Jesus reiterate his desire that every generation of Christian be unified. But he takes it one step further here. He prays that they may all be one in us, that the world may believe. Jesus is saying that the byproduct of our divine unity would be the salvation of others, that the world would see Jesus. And here's why this would result. Our unity should be supernatural. The basis of what unifies different people must be something greater than what would naturally divide. And Jesus here is saying that we have unity not in an institution, but we have unity in a relationship. You know, in marriage, much the same way as the church, a husband and a spouse, they grow closer together in the bond of matrimony when they're growing closer to Jesus. If you place Jesus as a sinner... It's only logical you get closer when you're each getting closer to Jesus. It's that the substance of our unity. Same thing with the church. Jesus is the center. He's the head. How do we grow closer together when there's so much that would divide us? Well, you're getting closer to Jesus. And you're an LSU fan. And that might naturally divide. But I'm getting closer to Jesus as a Georgia fan. But it's the process of getting closer to Jesus, a greater commonality, that we grow closer together. This is what he's saying, that they may all be one in us. It's only when we get closer to Jesus that as a byproduct, we grow closer to one another. Disunity, division, always occurs when our eyes are no longer on Jesus, but on what divides and what separates. Jesus closes out, he says, Father, 
I desire that they also, whom you gave, this word gave, it means to give once and for all, that, that those whom you gave me may be with me where I am, and that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known. I have known you. And these have, have known that you sent me. And I have declared, that's past tense, to them your name. And I will declare, that's a future continual tense, that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. As Jesus winds down his prayer, he says, I desire that they may be with me. He's referring to us, this future tense. Jesus, he's longing for the consummation of all things, that we may be with him and see his glory. How amazing it is to know that Jesus desires for you and I to be home with him in heaven. Do you desire to be with him? He closes his prayer asking that the love with which his father had loved him may be in us and he in us. You know, on numerous occasions this very night, Jesus has spoken to these men about the love they were to have for one another. In fact, earlier in John 13, verse 34, around the Passover table, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Not as you love yourself, not as you love your neighbor, but you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. There is no question that that type of love is only possible with the indwelling of Jesus in our lives through His Spirit. In regards to this crucial component of love and the Christian life and Christian community, David Guzik, he remarks, take love from joy and you have hedonism. Take love from holiness, you have self-righteousness. Take love from truth and you have a bitter orthodoxy. Take love from mission and you have conquest. Take love from unity and you have tyranny. As we close up this section, there is one overarching point I want to make. There's a lot of application, a lot of things we could discuss. Here's my point of application, simple. <laughs> Jesus prayed. And he prayed a lot. In fact, he prayed daily. Jesus was in constant prayer with his heavenly Father. While on earth, Jesus found it very important to pray. And here's why Jesus prayed with such frequency and why we should adopt the same approach. The shortest distance between two people is prayer. Jesus prayed. Why? Because it constantly, it constantly brought him and his father together. It closed the distance. If Jesus couldn't be physically in the presence of his father, the next best thing was to be spiritually there in prayer. Amazing. This morning, if you feel distant from the Lord, when was the last time you prayed? You know, beyond that point in the context of unity, again, I just want to reiterate, the shortest distance between two people is prayer. 
If you're wanting to connect with other people in your church, if you're sensing a distance between you and your spouse, a wedge between friends, the easiest way to remedy that distance is to pray together, to pray for one another, to pray with one another. If you're longing to develop a genuine Christ-infused, Holy Spirit-driven type of relationship with a fellow believer, the quickest way to accomplish that is to pray for one another. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for this.